Hello, everyone. This is your host, Manoj Tandon. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today, we have another awesome guest joining us. We're honored to have James Potter join us. James has been in the business for over 25 years. He's an active directory veteran with that much experience and computer experience for much longer than that. We'll let him tell us about that here in a second. Uh, you know, he has worked at prestigious firms like Ernest & Young and PricewaterhouseCoopers, and then went on to form his own company, DSE, in 2019. And uh, he's a car aficionado, resides in the Pacific Northwest, and is a complete e expert on all things AD. And we're eager to uh, get his advice. So James, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, not a problem. I was, uh, I was looking forward to introing myself, but I think you did a pretty good job of it. <laughs> so, you know, give us a little bit about your background. You know, we uh, the intro will only give us a little bit. How, like, you've been in this business forever. You predate Active Directory. So tell us about how life got started in computer land, if you will. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, I'm, I grew up in, in Detroit. I always thought computers were really interesting, right? I mean, there was a, an Atari in my life at one point. And that was just like, this thing is the coolest thing ever. I can't imagine anything even cooler than a Atari. And a little bit later on, um, my family actually got an Amiga 2000, which was just, remember it blew all of my friends' computers out of the water, right? Like compared to their Ataris or NESs, it was just state of the art. And it was just so fascinating. And I wanted to learn everything there was to, to learn about this thing. It's just just this amazing tool, not just for, for gaming, but for, for anything else you could want to do. Like you could spreadsheet on that. It had a, had a full GUI. It was, it was really, really fascinating. Now that would have placed, that was like the early eighties or right. Or mid eighties. The Amiga came out like mid, mid late eighties. They had a few different variants running around yeah. out there. The, uh, the uh, 2000 was late eighties if memory serves. That was a, is a, is a great, great system. Uh, even had a hard drive, not a tape drive. It had a, gosh, how big was this hard drive? It was in megabytes. It was so small. <laughs> yeah. But back then that would have been considered big, right? I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was, it was a big deal. My, uh, my stepfather had purchased it to, uh, cause all of his brothers had computers and he, he picked it up and I don't think he really knew what to do with it. So it just kind of sat there and then I got to play with it. <laughs> So did you go into, from there, go into mainframe systems or? No. So for, for me, kind of, you know, uh, cutting my teeth on all this tech in the, the 80s and, and early 90s, uh, I, was, I was still going to, to, to public school. But I, I ended up dropping out uh, fairly early. Um, I think I made it to like uh, 10th grade. The public school system just really wasn't, wasn't for me. Um, I, I was learning better on my own than I was through the school system. So at that point, yeah. I, I started looking at certifications and you know, what can I do in this this industry to get exposed and you know get get that that first foot in the door, which you know is, is tough. Like uh, late '90s was not the best time to to get into tech. Like '99, 2000, and then we had that that huge bust in 2000 and 2001. Yeah, bust. Uh, yep. Yeah, that was that was a rough rough period of time. But what I, what I had done is uh, after I you know dropped out of high school, I started working at U of M, their computer lab. You know, re replacing floppy drives and fifty pound CRT monitors, and you know helping students with Word and how to transfer data from from you know floppy drives to zip drives and you know, stuff like that. But it was it was a foot in the door for like the uh, the, the hardware side, the help desk. And I I personally think that's something I love to see on a resume because when I see someone that has like 
at least a couple of years of help desk, I know they've been through it, right? Because that's that's when you learn empathy and you learn humanity working working help desk. And I think that's a really or you come out a very mad person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you figure out after a year or two of help desk if it's something you want to do the rest of your life. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, I mean, well, when I was at uh, U of M, they were they were still using NetWare, right? Because this is like uh, pre Windows two thousand oh, kind wow. of stuff. And uh, my uh, my first exposure to uh, Active Directory would have been right when it came out in in two thousand. Because I we'd done the like the NT four O and the NetWare systems, and had that that visibility, and it was it was clumsy. It was like the best thing that was out at the time, but it was just very hard to maintain at scale. And AD came out, and it's like holy smokes, we can replicate all yeah. of our users. We don't have a limit of like, you know, 500 users per domain controller. This is amazing. We could have 100,000 users. This is going to scale infinitely. And I saw that as like, man, all the large companies, they have to do this. There's no way not to do this. There's no competitor. So was um, back then, I'm trying to remember, NT4O didn't have AD. Was it like JetBlue or Blue? I forget the name of the... There was a ah, jet. So data. yeah, so actually, yeah. modern Active Directory is still based on on a, a jet database methodology that was really? developed in the early '90s, around uh, 90, 92 or so. So at its core, like Active Directory is just a replicated database uh, based on a jet of all things, which is uh, almost thirty years old, over thirty years old now. Wow. Um, so it's it's it was the first big replicatable database that was deployed at scale uh, for for enterprises. And it was it was a big deal. It really was because before you had to have these NT four O DCs with a primary DC and a backup DC. And if you you had over a certain number of users, you had to create more of these and more of these and more of these. And if user moved from site A to site B, their user count didn't exist there. So there's all sorts of add on technology that you had to duct tape and stick on top of it. And it, it was just very very clumsy. But you know the first Windows two thousand Active Directory server kind of changed everything. It was it was a big deal and it's still leveraged by the vast majority of Fortune five hundreds around the world today. Has its uh organization or security changed since Windows oh. two thousand? Oh my gosh. Yes, yeah, so much. Uh there's been so many changes in the past, you know, twenty years. Uh so we'll we'll go to the very, very first one. So now, back in the the early 2000s, Microsoft would recommend a uh, you know a, a, an empty empty administrative domain and then a child domain, right? So you put all of your production stuff in the child and all of your high security stuff in in the parent. And uh, you know they had to stop uh, telling everyone to do that because it's not a security boundary, right? Uh, the the parent child relationship is is not inherently uh, you know secure. Uh, forests are security boundaries, but domain uh, child and parent domain trust are, are not security boundaries. So what you see in a lot of these older companies that adopted AD right back in the 2000 days is they all have this empty root for basically no reason because Microsoft told everybody to do it, right? And there's there's lots of examples of that over the course of time. And then security's gotten just so much better for Active Directory. But the downside is Microsoft doesn't force those changes because they don't want to break somebody's production. So Microsoft comes out with all these new security methodologies and baselines, and they're there in the operating system. You can flip them on, but more often than not, they're not flipped on by default. Again, because backwards compatibility, and that's the the big thing with with Microsoft. Like if you could do it in Windows 2000, you can almost still do all of that now in the latest versions of the operating systems. All the GUIs, you know, you, command lines, everything's there. 
you you bring up a very interesting point here is that um there there's a notion that especially with the cloud that microsoft's taking care of my security you know and i don't have th there's this especially in the um executive circles there's this notion that if we go to the cloud microsoft's taking care of it so if you go to ad in the cloud that's apparently there, but as you're rightfully describing, it's doesn't matter if it's cloud or on-prem, I'm guessing you're going to have to do configuration changes. That's still yeah. left. Yeah. You still, you still need the three, three tiers of, of security for, for at least larger organizations. And this is what DSC primarily works with is your, your, your fortune 500s. So in, in our opinion, you need, really three things to have a good security foundation. These are abstract concepts, okay. but ones that I think are very applicable. One, you need a security architect for that specific tech, whether it's a network security architect, a, an identity security architect, a, a desktop security architect, it, it, it doesn't matter. It, depending on your scale, you you have a security architect for that specific technology. Let's, let's talk about Active Directory here. So you need a okay. good, Active Directory security architect. You're going to have to spend money on this person. They aren't going to be cheap, but they need to be passionate, right? They need to care about what's going on at the business and okay. kind of have a ha have a dog in the race, right? There should be some sort of like performance or compensation plan, like, hey, if we don't get hacked, you get this over this time period. Some sort of golden handcuffs, right, to to keep that motivation there. Um, and two, okay. you need at least a couple very good engineers to implement that architect's vision, right? They push out the security changes, they push out the policies, they, they make the architect's vision into reality in the enterprise. Um, and then below them, a bunch of sysadmins that are able to turn wrenches, press buttons, and, and get the job done. You don't have to spend a, a ton of money on the, the admins, uh, but you definitely spend on the engineers and the architect. And then third, you need auditors to come in and make sure those security controls are implemented, whether they're internal or external, it kind of depends on your org and you know what you do. But if you have those three things, you have security controls that are updated and pushed out in policy. You have them actually implemented in the organization. And then you have auditors checking to make sure those policies are there and they're functioning as expected. And that could be through auditing, red teaming, kind of very org dependent. So, James, um, you've worked with lots of companies. How many actually have all three of these basic things? <laughs> very, very few. Uh, typically, you get two out of three, right? You'll get, you know, hey, we have great security architects, we have great engineers, but there's holes because no one's auditing it, right? And the, the, the thing about, you know, uh, users and admins is they find the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance is not always the most secure path. So having the, the organization externally audited or at least having some internal auditors or internal red teams kind of poke around and see if there's holes is, is really important because that's what the threat actors are going to do, right? the bad guys are going to be running discovery tools to discover where your weaknesses are. And if you're 98% secured, they're going to find that 2%. Yeah. Well, that's how they make money. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Right. So they're absolutely hell bent on doing that. And what, like you're working at DSC, you guys are working with fortune 500s, but what's an SMB to do? Because most of the time they got like two guys or maybe a guy or a part-time person that's, you know, does their networking. It's like, they're the jack of all trades, right? And cybersecurity means I've put like a phishing protection and endpoint tool or something like that on 
and that's it's, it for cyber man we're uh-huh. yeah it's it's really really tough for smbs because they don't have a, a ton of extra money um don't have a ton of extra uh, resources for for headcount so the the people that you have as we talked about are typically generalists and generalists can go off of you know security baselines so nist inspires cis to release their compliance standards right all of the cis right. stuff is largely based on nist but this this is compliance and and not security and there there is a difference there so compliance will, will help secure your org 100% but mostly it's there to help you pass compliance tests and the data yeah. tends to be rather old it takes a long time for security control to get added to nist and then added to cis and then trickle down into something that these admins can click a button and, and, and push out. So it's it's really tough there, but it, it's a good starting point, right? Getting everything like CIS level two compliant, you know, if you're a smaller org, that's something you can look to that's gonna, gonna help out a lot. That's fairly well documented that uh, any uh, jack of all trades could just pick up and go push out. Do you think the situation would improve if the decision makers or the powers that be somehow better understood the risk or it was articulated to them in a much better way. It it just seems like cybersecurity risk is, even today, especially in SMB, is not grasped really well. You know, they they don't understand. It's tough because a lot of SMBs assume they're not targets. Like, hey, we're only making, you know, 50 or 80 mil a year. Like, why would why would anyone care about us? Or we're only making 20 mil a year. We're, we're, we're small, like we're a rounding error. But when you're small, you're an easier target because you don't have that same uh, kind of security presence that the larger organizations have. So you're the house on the block that has their back door unlocked. And that's the house that's going to get broken into because it's the easiest to get into. And because of that, we're seeing threat actors like Lock, Lockbit and Alfie hit a lot of smaller companies. And for many of them, you know, it can be a it can be a death knell, right? If suddenly you can't do any accounts payable or accounts receivable because all of your 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 accounting systems are ransomware and you don't have a backup that's not from three years ago, then you're you're dead in the water. It's it's literally put uh, organizations out of business. A hospital, hospital went out of business because of this. You, you know what the interesting stat on that is that most SMBs six months post breach are typically out of business. Yeah, it's it's bad. It can be extremely extremely debilitating, and that kind of risk is is hard for humans to like intrinsically place a value on. We're, we're really bad at what if there's a big natural disaster? What if there's a flood or a hurricane or, or a war or you know, some sort of global climate change. Like, what does that look like in dollars and cents? And we're not very good at that, right? We're, we're very historically bad at it. Even insurance companies are, are bad at it. And this is something we're, we're kind of seeing this space because it's, it's hard for an SMB to justify spending on security because they can't quantify the risk appropriately. Because um, even, even spending money on someone to come in and quantify the risk is like, ah, oh, that's a lot of cash. Why would I spend like a lot half of money. million dollars to like, just know what my my risk threshold is like because that's a that's a big chunk of change to a smaller organization so it's really tough so we see a lot of these SMBs turning to to MSPs for their security right so they'll they'll have one guy on staff that does tech and then they'll outsource everything out to an MSP and okay the MSP is taking care of all of it I don't I don't need to worry about it the MSP is doing it but the MSPs themselves are also small businesses right they're also SMBs right. 
So they're cutting corners as well. They'll bring in one person or a small group of people and, you know, they're juggling, you know, five, 10, 20 different clients simultaneously. So they're trying to go as fast as possible to make as much money as possible. So when that MSP gets popped, then all of their clients also get popped downstream. Uh, it's supply chain stuff like that is getting really nasty. Which is why a lot of MSPs can't get cybersecurity insurance, but that's a separate topic altogether. <laughs> it's expensive. Uh, it's, it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive as heck for them. And, and for it's, that exact reason, James, that you just pointed out. Yeah, there's a so lot of, a lot of liability. It, what would you say is the biggest, in your, just in your opinion, the biggest risks that the organizations face, large and small? What? The biggest one is credential elevation, right? Because more often than not, a threat actor's entry point into an enterprise is workstations, desktops, laptops, that kind of stuff. And the first machine they pop normally doesn't have a ton of privileges on it, right? It has, you know, Bob or Judy's account, and they can email, they can, you know, message people. Maybe they have access to some web front end, but it's it's not domain admin permissions. And through really common misconfigurations, uh, whether SMB or, or enterprise, there could be service accounts kicking off on that machine that have much higher permissions. Like a really popular thing for a long time was, I just make the SCCM and SCOM accounts domain admins and they can do everything. The problem is if you're using the same SCCM and SCOM account on your workstations, your servers and your DCs, well, you, you pop any one of those machines and now you're a domain admin. Norgs have gotten better about isolating those, but still more often than not we see domain admins using the same desktop they use for productivity as for their domain administrative tasks and Absolutely. if one of their machines gets compromised that's that's game over for the org right uh threat actors are going to get in they're going to establish persistence you're not going to find them for average of five to six months that's how long it takes a uh, average company to discover a threat actor in their environment and uh, you're gonna you're gonna have a bad time because they're they're getting more patient. Um, threat actors more often than not aren't doing what they did at MGM, or is a fast kind of smash and grab. They're planning and they're they're even infiltrating backups. So if you have a backup, great. That's not 100% proof for ransomware. Because if threat actors know you have good backups, they're going to linger as long as they can, corrupt your backups. So even if you restore from backup, your stuff is still ransomed. So it's not not a surefire defense. Wow. That's uh, what you just described is ubiquitous. I, I I hate to say it in the industry, though. Yeah, it's everywhere. There's very it's, few orgs that everywhere. have gone and, and actually separated their domain admins with separate workstations or PAW or SAW or, or something like that. And the thing we're telling orgs is like, look, you don't you don't need a PAW or SAW for, for everyone in the org. You just need it for your tier zero, your domain admins, your enterprise admins. And increasingly, your, your network admins, right? Because threat actors are going after network devices. So getting those users also on a, a PAW or SAW is, is really going to help fortify your environment with about a ton of extra cost. Like even if you don't do like a Bastion Forest or something like that, if you do Interforest tiering by isolating those domain admins and other tier zero admins off to the side mm -hmm. with their own um, you know, workstations and laptops to perform their tier zero activities and then prevent those tier zero IDs from logging into regular desktops and, and regular servers, you've already gained a lot of security with no subscription, no software. It's it's just technical controls you've implemented to help secure your org. And that's, that's something SMBs can do, but there's not a clear instruction guide on how to do that from Microsoft, right? This is something you kind of have to get in and figure out yourself. There's not like a step-by-step -step article out there for this. 
for for some of the folks who may be listening who are not super technical, why do we still have an AD? Let me back up to that. What's the reason? <laughs> well, there's for it? there's there's really no replacement for it if you're a a large organization. Now, some orgs have homebrewed their own, right? Like uh, like Google and Apple. Obviously, they're not big Microsoft shops, right? Uh, but for anyone that's been around, uh, it, it's a it's a requirement because you you started using it in 2000, especially for these large orgs, and you've been using it ever since. And once you you, you start and you have everything running off AD, your auth is going through it, all your applications are going through it. It's hard to uproot that and just put it somewhere else. Uh, Lululemon tried this, and they're a relatively uh, newer company. They tried to move 100% cloud native. They got like 90, 95% of the way, and then five to 10% of their infrastructure has to stay in the data center because there was app uh, compatibility that they needed for their business that they just couldn't get 100% away from. And that's the kind of thing that still so still gets people. It's very hard to be 100% cloud native unless you started 100% cloud native. So we're seeing more newer SMBs just do 100% cloud, whether it's you know Google or Microsoft or Amazon, whatever your favorite flavor is. But that does that still solve your AD problems? <laughs> uh, yes, yes and no. So for for a lot of these these cloud providers, they have uh, their their variant of identity, right? So uh, Microsoft has uh, Intra, and that's you yep. can kind of look that look at that as Active Directory for Azure, but it's really not a full Active Directory suite. It'll handle creation or removal of identities, but Anything you were doing on-prem with with application tie-ins or auth, anything that's AD compatible is, is not really going to work with Intra. So they're, they're two different technology stacks. And uh, there's, there's similar variants to Intra on, on Google and, and, and AWS. Um, it's, it's not really the same. You can throw an Active Directory server out in the cloud and still have Active Directory, but there's not really any native cloud replacement for AD. What about... Um... I'll ask the dumb question here, like these identity providers, like Universal Directory from Okta, does that uh. play a role? In... Yeah, please. Well, uh, be beyond the black eyes that Okta already has right now from a security <laughs> standpoint, uh, right, the, the right. problem the problem with, with creating a, a secondary uh, store of identities from a security standpoint is is now you have an additional door on your house that someone can break in. If you have Active Directory and that's your only identity store, you only have one door. So you can fortify the crap out of that door. You can put deadlocks on it, put a camera, you know, peephole, deadbolts, steel door, whatever. And then you bolt Okta on the side and it's your back door made out of balsa wood with no lock on it. Not great. And even if it does get better with time, it's not going to be as solid as the existing solutions uh, from a security standpoint. Um, just because raw development and experience. Look how much development time, hours, and money Microsoft has been putting into Active Directory over the years. Now, how much has Okta, a, a company of not even a fraction of the size of Microsoft, put into their security stack? It's not going to be as strong of a door. I, but the Microsoft door, you have to configure properly, as, as you mentioned. <laughs> yes. You do have to right. configure Otherwise, it properly. <laughs> so, so give us some tips. You already told us about a few things. Things that foundationally you would say, this is hygiene 101, AD 101, that you should be doing. If, regular regular password audits. Or, 
Yeah. Audit, audit yeah. your passwords, 100%. So there's, there's password lists that threat actors will use. Um, one of the most common password attacks right now is called password spraying. Threat actors will take the most common passwords that exist and just hit every account in your org, you know, once with it, try and get someone, try to get that password to work. And then they'll wait a little bit, do another round and another round. And that's not going to set off as many alarms, right? Because all of our alarms are set to recognize, hey, someone's trying thousands of passwords on account B. Let's right. lock it out. Okay, we got that. But password spraying kind of flies under the radar because they try these common passwords that meet current security compliance policies that are still very, very weak. Um, and these are all well-known passwords that sit in, in, in dictionaries that anyone, uh, one of these orgs can can grab and, and do a cross-reference. And that's what I would really encourage doing, like cross-reference your existing passwords with one of these password spray or these, these RockU password tables that threat actors are using. And if you, you show users that are, are popping up with these well-known passwords, you know, change them, right? And it's, it, it's tough for SMBs to kind of like devote time and resources to doing this. But you know, even doing this once every six months is going to have a lot of a lot of value for an org, and it's also going to tell you if your your system admins are using the same password for their productivity account as they are for their administrative account, assuming they have two. Likely they are. Yeah, I mean, path of least resistance. least resistance. Yeah, this is what humans a, do. It's it's human nature, right? I mean, it's not that they're doing the. There, there's no malicious intent on their part. It's like you're, it's the path of least resistance, right? It's one yeah. more password to remember, right? Yep. And so it's, do password it, it's audits. Tough. Yeah, definitely password audits. You know, meet, meet your compliance standards. CIS is a for SMBs at least. It's it's a good way to get most of the way there. And then beyond that, just intelligent network designs. You don't open external management if you don't absolutely need to. We've been seeing a lot of network devices being popped lately because they have you know, external administrative access and there's some sort of vulnerability with the software, whether it's you know, Cisco or some sort of firewall, Citrix. Um, if you don't have to have that administrative portal open, don't, don't open it, use it internally. And that's gonna buy you a lot of security, right? just right there because you don't have that admin portal facing externally. So if there is a vulnerability, you're protected from it because you don't have those ports open. What about, um, you, you, we talked briefly about escalation of privileges, but you, it happens. I'll give you a, a, a simple use case. A, a lot of times under security policies, Admins will block users from installing software or updating software, okay, which is controversial too because there's a that's a double-edged sword. But we'll we'll go away from that <laughs> for just a second, right? Because you end up with a whole bunch of unpatched systems. But that that's besides the point. You know, sometimes you see that they will they call their help desk and they yell at them, and then the help desk says, "You know what? Fine, we'll enable you to." There's this program that you gotta have because you know you you do a specific function and it's unique yep. and whatever the reason they they let you install it, but they never take away that privilege, right? So Permission now that creep. yeah, so now that user is out there and they've got administrative privileges and then that gets used. So there's a few different bind. ways to kind of kind of tackle that specific issue. Um, 
you can you can have your your help desk staff install the application for them via some sort of remote management software, right? That's an option. You can temporarily make that user an administrator with a with a with a timeout effectively. So there's a lot of ways you can kind of dev this um, internally. You don't need CyberArk or any other expensive software suite for that. You can you can write it in house with PowerShell um, as long as the the infrastructure has already been prepped. One one thing we like to do is we like to manage our workstation administrative groups and our server administrative groups with uh, group policy preferences. This is all built into Windows and it has wildcard environmental variables that you can leverage. And what I mean by wildcards is, let's look at our, our, our desktops. So you could have okay. the group um, right in your policy, you do desktop dash percent computer name percent dash admins. So that one gets thrown into your local admins group on the desktop. And then you also put, desktop, um, you know, dash, you know, admins, global, global, global admins. Okay. So that one gets put put in there as well. So now you have a, a global admin. So anyone that's a member of this can manage all the desktops. And then you have a one-to-one. -one. You actually have a specific Active Directory security group that sits out there for each one of your desktops. And now when Bob or Judy calls in and says, hey, I need to be an admin on my machine. I have to install this software. We're going to miss this big, big timeline, whatever. You can pop their account into that uh, group temporally. Say, all right, Bob, now you're an admin for the next, you know, four hours. Install whatever you need to, and then you you can have PowerShell just time it out and pull it out of the group, or lots of different kind of methodologies to do that. But that gives you the ability to actually push that out and manage it via uh, PowerShell and Active Directory instead of on the local machine where things often get forgotten. How do you do that? when a lot of people don't even know what all their compute assets are. I mean, oh, that's a gosh. foundational yeah. problem. Yeah, it's it's worse for SMBs too, because they, they move fast, they grow fast, and uh, asset inventory isn't always at the top of the list for things they should be doing. You'll find machines that aren't even domain joined, right? They're just, hey, I spun up this machine so I can start doing this task, and it's not a part of the domain, it sits off to the side but I need to do this thing on it. And the IT department might not even know about it. So that's, asset inventory is pretty pretty important. And especially as you grow, you start doing a good job of it when you're small, as you grow, that's gonna really, really pay dividends. And as far as the, the discovery side there, network should be able to help you discover all those machines. You know, Look at all the MAC addresses. You can cross-reference those to the, the vendor that the MAC address belongs to cross-reference those to IPs, what location they sit in. And that's a that's a good start if, you, if you're not gonna buy a solution that already does uh, inventory. So I, I'll tell you, we um, in, many years ago, we used to do Tanium work, okay? Ah, yeah. And, and uh, of course that's, it's technology for a megacorp, right? It's not for an SMB play, but- It's built for enterprise, yeah. You, yeah, in in the enterprise space, we would still find that what they thought they had versus what the technology found, the number was always ten to fifteen percent higher. Yeah, it, even in it, it gets it gets really murky, especially if you have like a, a creative department and they're all running non Windows machines, right? They're running Apple machines, or maybe your security team is running a bunch of Linux yeah. machines, and, and now those those aren't always directly exposed to the domain. So from an AD standpoint, they they don't exist. Uh, they might still still exist on the network side. Um, network will still know about them, but AD will not know they exist. That's why I really like 
running inventory from a networking perspective and not so much from an agent perspective because network's going to see everything. Um, Active Directory or a, a specific agent's only going to see things that it's been exposed to. That's very true. That's very true. And, and you're right. There's a lot of mixed environments. Even in small businesses, there's mixed environments. You know, there's people who are running Macs or there's Linux boxes or, you know, what have you. Or you got uh, Android devices sitting out there. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah, all, yeah. All kinds of stuff that's 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 on your network. Um, not that I have anything against Android. But it's just an example that came out. It's a real mixed bag and getting a handle on that inventory is, is a problem um, to begin with. What, well, because if do you, you, don't, do like... you don't find it, the threat actors will. Um, use case here, uh, the, the Ubisoft hack, right? Threat actors yes. sat in their environment, looked at JIRA documents, networking designs, all the documentation that that company had, they ingested all of it and learned the network better than the people running the network found the weaknesses and exploited them. But they were, they were in there, you know, over six months just doing discovery and learning about this environment before they, before they executed their payloads and they you know, which, made think... sure to do a good job so that they didn't get caught because they were doing a lot of monitoring in the Ubisoft network. They were looking for LLMNR and, you know, password hash manipulation, all the common stuff. And the threat actors found a vulnerability they weren't looking for and exploited it um, via assets that weren't known. So, you know, inventorying is very important from a security standpoint. Now, why would they not have geofenced their identities? That's another. Well, so you know, geofencing, is... geofencing is it's it's tough for for global companies, right? Because you can't just say, hey, don't let anyone in from Europe if you have a presence in Europe. So you can get more granular, right, at a, at a, at a per country level. Um, but even that's kind of difficult to maintain and not 100% effective, right? Because you can easily have a machine that a threat actor is using from that, that region that's been compromised. Now, it will show up as a new IP address. So if you get granular to the level of, hey, you can only do your administrative work from this specific IP address, that's effective from a, a networking control for sure. But it's also very expensive to maintain at scale because, you know, dev goes from their home to another location and, hey, I can't do my work anymore. Hey, I can't do this anymore. I can't do that anymore. And I have to call into the help desk and get a new IP added. And, you know, they're never going to use that IP again because it was their, their aunt's house or something, right? So it's, it's hard to maintain at scale. You can definitely do a lot of geofencing and depending on what your org does and where they do it, there's definitely a lot of benefits there, but it's, it's not a silver bullet. Thanks for saying that. I, you, I, you made the point that I was going to go after. It's not the silver bullet. It's, it has value as long as you understand the context in which it is deployed and understand what the limitation behind it is. Cause often it's marketed as well, you know, will if if you have adaptive mfa then then you're golden you're much better but you're not golden. <laughs> yeah much better that's what i would say it's significantly improved but not bulletproof <laughs> but you're not bulletproof yeah well nothing really is i i would venture to say james i mean you've been in this business for a long time will we ever really get to uh a system that cannot be hacked i unless it even 
even air gap systems have have vulnerabilities and these have been known for for quite a while actually since you know about but before me right uh so air gapping systems um you have to control any any electronic emissions uh think about when you're typing on a keyboard each key makes a distinct sound for that location and that user in that room and if you had a sound device hooked up to that room and you're performing listening you can with relatively good accuracy, determine which keystrokes are, are, are being entered. And beyond that, electronic emissions from the, the computer itself. Um, I, I had a case in the uh, probably early 2000s that was an old DOD case from like the, the 80s or, set, or 90s, I don't remember exactly, but it had uh, electronic uh, EMF shielding all around the external of the case to control electronic emissions. So no one could you know, point a, a device at the case and try and figure out what you're doing from a processing standpoint. So even air gap systems have their vulnerabilities. I'll, I'll yeah, be it. You know, real edge case stuff. Well, I mean, I, I always bring it up on this show. That's how we compromise the uh, Iranian centrifuges, right? That was Operation Nitro <laughs> Zeus, right? That, that was the that whole was air gap. Yep. <laughs> that was completely air gap. Until, but again, it, you it know, wasn't. it's a great example of human <laughs> greed. Yeah. It, they dropped USB devices. That's what they, and they were hoping they left freebie USB devices at uh, local haunts. Well, there's, there's some somebody... new data that's coming, coming out that actually pointed to a, a Dutch double agent for this. And the, the USB drops were just the story to give this person some cover. Uh, this is, this has oh, been really? published relatively recently, I think past couple weeks. But basically, they, they tracked it down to this individual who smuggled in uh, a USB system using some of the water uh, input for the uh, for the, the environment. So they floated the USB in because they get searched when they're at the door. And then he picked it up internally, plugged it in, and his job is done. And then they, they did the well, cover story for dropping USB in, in public areas to kind of remove some ah. of the heat from that individual. Uh, that's fascinating, right? Well, that's fascinating. It yeah. well, we, we've had uh, we we've had a couple. Uh, we had just a couple weeks ago. We had a human targeter on who worked for the Navy, um, mm -hmm. and that was her job uh, was to target people and figure out how they can be compromised. We've had uh, a real CIA agent on the show, and he says compromising people is actually pretty straightforward if you know how to <laughs> go about well, practicing all, your crap it's so all about the that, data that, sets you have this is this is something that the ccp has been doing to the u.s at, at scale harvesting our financial data uh harvesting our, our our health data debts all these kind of things and they're, they're looking for people that already work within the government that have a lot of debt that maybe become disillusioned with the u.s for one reason or another and they might be looking at an individual whose wife or husband has cancer and they've, you know, second mortgage on their house. They spend everything on this treatment and they're just scraping by. And this person is clearance. Well, that's a that's a target, right? That's someone who who did everything right and they're losing and they they might not be uh, very patriotic at that point in their lives. And they're a target. And if you have a large enough data set, you can identify lots of targets fairly quickly. Oh, yeah. And then. You know, it, it gets back to human behavior again, right? So if you have deadbolts and everything on your door, that's great. But what if I just unlock all that stuff? <laughs> well, yeah, threat actors are starting to target users at home, right? 
because we have a lot of people working working remotely, right? More than we probably have at any other point in, in history. And the corporate network might be very well fortified, but this user sitting on their home network, you know, they have SMB exposed, they're with their family, bunch of people downloading things, going out the internet, and they're on that same subnet. And the machine they're using might even be a personal machine, might be just some Windows machine that doesn't really have any rigorous security controls. But even if it's yep. a corporate asset with, with good security controls, if you compromise the network, you know, before that machine connects to the VPN, it's vulnerable. And uh, we're seeing more sophisticated threat actors that are doing specific targeting attacks, starting at the home and then infiltrating into the enterprise from there. And you know what? This trend is here to stay. So absolutely. Uh, so we need to solve it. Another thing, that, <laughs> uh, another thing that we haven't solved yet uh, is this whole thing of mergers and acquisitions. When you look at Oof. companies that grow, you acquire a firm, you might have great security controls, but the guys you acquired sucked. Uh, and now yeah. they're part of your domain. M&A and divestitures have been huge uh, the past two years, just like they were after 08 and, and 01. You get a lot of smaller companies getting getting bought up and you get larger companies that are publicly traded and shareholders are saying, hey, sell this profitable area. Our, the stock's not doing well. You need to make some money. And because of that, you need to sell this arm. So there's a lot of M&A and divestitures that are, that are happening right now. And, and you hit the head on the nail uh, right there rather rather perfectly. The smaller orgs often do not have the same security presence as the larger org that's consuming them. And when you bring that environment into yours, you're presenting a, a fair amount of risk. And one of the most common things uh, will happen is, hey, let's just snapshot their AD and you know bring it over and then we'll, we'll start kind of merging oh, everything. That over. is a bad idea, man. Yeah, it happens. It happens so much. You, you just get a complete snapshot of, uh, of the dick. It gets moved over and then everything that was bad before it gets brought into that new environment. Oh. So it, it's not something I, I advise people to do, but it's the path of least resistance. It gets them up and running as quickly as possible. So there's a lot of non-security oriented uh, you know m a firms or divestiture firms that will will do this they're very good at at merging identities and getting everything migrated but they don't always put security at the forefront because it's an added cost right so you see a lot of vendors even vendors that are you know releasing the software themselves kind of cutting corners here from the security side of things and this happens in really large companies too. You get a lot of big companies <laughs> that acquire the innovative player, right? In the space, they may be the small company uh, and they're extremely good at whatever widget they're making, whatever that is, right? Yeah. But security yeah, on their network and was not their thing. And now yeah, they're, the big they're widget makers. Company. Yeah, they're widget makers. They're not security people. Like, why do we need to do security? We're making widgets. <laughs> Real, real common problem. And there's another flag that'll get turned on here too, which is, uh, you know, uh, SSID history or, you know, SID history. And that allows basically you to, to mimic different IDs. And it's, it's handy when you're performing a migration, but a lot of times post-migration, those flags will get left on. And that's a, a great tool for threat actors because now they can leverage that and they can pretend to be kind of whoever they want in their org while not appearing to be that individual. So definitely, you know, go turn your SID history off when you're done with migrations, everyone. Pretty pretty common baseline kind of thing, but just keep an eyeball on that. That 
great advice. And, you know, before we run out of time here, James, I wanted you to talk a little bit about DSE. I, I you know, oh. <laughs> what does your company do? I you guess know, I should uh, talk about my company, what, what shouldn't you, I? <laughs> yeah, I want you to. I want you to plug your company here. Tell us about your work and uh, what you guys are up to. Well, uh, DSE is an Active Directory focused security firm. As I mentioned, we do M and A and divestiture work, um, but the core, the meat and potatoes of what we do is Active Directory security. A lot of companies will do like an eighty wrap and push CIS compliance out, and then hey, we're good, we're fine. There's no other vulnerabilities in our Active Directory, but there, there inevitably are. So we use a lot of the same tools that threat actors leverage, right? Threat actors use Bloodhound to poke around and perform discovery. We use the enterprise variant of that, which is much more powerful. And we do the same type of uh, methodological discovery that threat actors will do. So whatever the bad guys are doing, we're mimicking it as close as we can, staying on top of their methodologies and attack paths so we can help these larger organizations, you know, not show up in the news. That's that's our goal. Make sure the CISO stays the CISO for as long as they want and uh, no publicity in the news. That's a tough job, man. I wouldn't be taking bets <laughs> on that. That's like, the sh that that's the shortest lift position in a company, right? I mean, you look at C and the average CISO life. Yeah. And that's, that's a shame too, because once a, once a security event happens at a company, the CISO is the ablative armor for the CIO, right? They, CISO right. gets let go and now they have this black stain on their career because, hey, they were at company X when they got hacked. We don't want that CISO. They did a bad job. But my perspective on that is that CISO saw what can happen and how quickly it can happen. In my opinion, they're more valuable because of that exposure, right? They're going to give you a more realistic view of risk because they've been through it and that carries a lot of weight. You know, we, we've had people also say about, you know, moving the CISO's office out from under the CIO, which I'm personally a big fan of, right? Because there's a conflict yeah, of interest there. You know, the, yeah, it, it's also, you know, money, right? And I think we're going to see a lot of changes. I haven't I haven't seen the latest developments on the SEC versus the, uh, the SolarWinds uh, CISO, but basically they're, they're publicly traded. The CISO knew about vulnerabilities, allegedly and didn't bubble those up to the CIO, so they didn't show up on the quarterly reports and investors got hurt. Now for publicly traded companies that have a CISO, all the CISOs are looking at that case. They wanna know what's gonna happen because if they're personally liable for not bubbling something up to the CIO, then a lot, lot more traffic is gonna come into those CIOs. They're gonna get a whole lot of data from those CISOs now because the CISOs don't wanna be personally liable for it. Uh, misleading shareholders. And then this, the CIO is going to have to take this data, figure out what bubbles up to the CEO and what bubbles up to the quarterly reports and what doesn't. So it's a shift in responsibility in my, my viewpoint. Yeah, well, I, take the CISO out from under the CIO and make him directly responsible to the board for security risks, right? And Yeah, that, that'll, that would change the landscape dramatically for the, for the better. Uh, it'll, it'll create a lot more work short term, but long term, it'll be a better security footprint for everybody. Hey, so, James, uh, you should write a book. Um, <laughs> you, I, you know, I appreciate I, that. <laughs> yeah, you you have a lot of knowledge here, and we're only we're just scratching the surface of this in forty five minutes or so. Um, we'd love to, if you're open to it, get you back and talk about some of the things that you have seen that have gone wrong, these real world use cases and real world examples, I think is what makes cybersecurity tangible. And we don't talk about them enough. 
You brought up. I'll some be happy really to good be ones. back and talk about it. Do you have any? Are you doing any talks? Are you are you speaking at any events? Uh, anything I, uh, coming up just, that you want everybody to know about? I am. I'm actually just recovering from surgery. I was supposed to speak at some conferences in the the southeast that I, I couldn't make. Uh, the kind of usual uh, gambit of B sides. Um, Black Hat talks that I'm hoping get accepted this year so I can speak a little bit about Active Directory and security and some basically free ways to harden your, your Active Directory environment without buying any software or anything. It's just configuration, as we talked about, right? If you put these configurations in, you're you're going to be more secure. And it's it's kind of a boring topic, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping there's a big enough audience at Black Hat to recognize the value there. So look out for me. I of think course, at Black, Black Hat, Hat, there will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They get a lot of competition. They have about a 10% acceptance rate for talks. So they'll they'll get a thousand and only a hundred, you know, get through. So it's it's competitive to get in there. Yeah, they they like the new cutting edge vulnerabilities and stuff. For me, it's just baseline security and what you can do better seems more impactful because the uh the big vulnerabilities always get patched fairly quickly. And as long as you're patching, you know, you're you're all right there. But the foundational stuff is, is the real issue. Oh yeah, we could talk for hours about patching. About that, right? But it's um, it's still the basics we're not getting right, and I think having that discussion on what all the vulnerabilities are, things that you see, especially making it tangible, like think real life stories of what's happened. Um, I think that would that might make cybersecurity more tangible, and um, and I think if even a couple people listen to your advice. You did the world a favor. Now, how do they get a hold of you? How do they get a hold of your company? Oh, well, I mean, uh, you can pop out to our website. It's a dse.team. Uh, we're, we're still saving up for that .com. It's a little on the spendy side since it's a three letter. Um, and you can you can always reach out to us. We have contact information out there. You, you can call us, email us, kind of, you know, whatever you want to do. And uh, we're happy to help. Even if you just have some questions and are looking for answers, uh, we, we don't mind. Just give us a ring, shoot us an email. Um, we'll, we'll give you some advice. Well, James, thank you so much. We'll put the links in the show notes and, uh, really appreciate you being here. Good stuff. Oh yeah. Happy to be here, man. Thank you.